For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out why the dwarf planet Pluto casts a historical shadow over the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff. Learn what U.S. military pilots and crew gain from land and sea survival training at Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. What do toads, tarantulas, and tortoises have in common? The monsoon is their season of love. And hear a book I love. Those stories are coming up on Arizona Spotlight. Just before the turn of the 20th century, Boston astronomer Percival Lowell became an international sensation for his observations of the planet Mars and the strange features that he called canals that were etched across the Martian surface. Although Lowell's theories about the canals have since been disproved, his dedication to advancing the science of astronomy is well respected. After an exhaustive search of the Southwest, Lowell determined Flagstaff, Arizona, to be an ideal location for an observatory. That's thanks to the dry climate, the clear skies, the high altitude, and access by railroad. For almost a decade before his death in 1916, Lowell used the telescope he built there to search for what he called Planet X. Using Lowell's methodology and equipment, Planet X was discovered in 1930 by astronomer Clyde Tombaugh, and soon the planet was renamed Pluto. This smallest and most distant member of our solar system is now classified as a dwarf planet, and it's receiving its first terrestrial visitor in the form of a flyby later this month from NASA's New Horizons mission. All of this is big news at the Lowell Observatory, where I spoke with Kevin Schindler. Pluto is certainly one of the defining characteristics of the observatory. We have such a neat history with Pluto because not only did we discover it here, but later scientists here were involved with the discovery of its atmosphere, um, some of the moons. The atmosphere of Pluto, that sounds weird. Tell us what Pluto might be like on the surface. Well, Pluto um, is an icy body, um, a lot of frozen gases, and in 1988, Astronomers had had predicted, based on models, that Pluto probably had some sort of an atmosphere, um, but they didn't know for sure until the Kuiper Airborne Observatory, which held a telescope and was airborne, and confirmed that Pluto did, in fact, have a thin atmosphere, uh, mostly of methane. Um, And it's it's fascinating because Pluto is pretty small, so it doesn't have as much gravitational pull as larger larger planets. And it's also got a very elliptical orbit, so sometimes it's closer to the, a lot closer to the sun than other times. And right now, Pluto's moving away from the sun, and for years, there are different theories on um, what might happen to Pluto's atmosphere. Could it all freeze up and maybe fall with snow, or maybe some of those gases would freeze, but there would still be a thin atmosphere? Um, there were just a lot of theories, but astronomers didn't really know. And so, an occultation in 2011, and an occultation is when, you know, a, a body passes in front of a distant star, and it can tell you a lot about that that body. Because it's backlit then. Right, exactly. And so 
between uh, that occultation and the, and the one from just a couple of days ago, um, we know that you know the atmosphere is still there, um, <laughs> and that's more than what it sounds like. Not just being flip about it, but you know, if one of the things New Horizons is looking at is the atmosphere. But it wasn't, you know, when they launched, it wasn't for sure if there would actually be an atmosphere to look at. What does the sun look like from Pluto? Uh, from Pluto, the sun is going to be bigger than just a regular background star, but it's not going to be, you know, this big ball in the sky like we have. It's going to be a, you know, it's going to be a smaller point of light. You know, if you were standing there, you would definitely know that's the sun, but it's just not, it's not as dominant in the sky like what we have here. Is there a division between night and day on Pluto? Well, that's an interesting question because you would have night and day, but what's interesting is is the daytime when the sun is up. You know, on Earth, we have this pretty sizable atmosphere which diffracts the light and so lights up everything. On Pluto, there's a very thin atmosphere, so you're not going to get as much diffraction of the light. You would probably have more of a like a flashlight beam effect. So there are no blue skies on Pluto. Right. I then talked about the upcoming Pluto-Palooza celebration with Lowell Observatory curator Samantha Thompson. With Pluto, people have different connections to it. It's either they grew up thinking of it as the smallest, farthest away planet, so um, they get very protective over it, and they want to know the history of it. Um, We get a lot of kids that like to teach their parents all about the current science involving Pluto and how we know so much more and how that dictates what determines what's called the planet. Um, That's interesting that you say people feel protective of it because in a way maybe being downvoted actually did Pluto a service because it made people appreciate it again. I completely agree. I think that there's been more attention um, attached to Pluto because it's all of a sudden this this object of mystery, and people do want to study it and want to know all about it and want to give it a reason to be called a planet again. It's been nice for us that people still care as actively. It's just, you know, in the 70s when all the other missions were going by, all the other gas giant planets, you know, people had a real affinity and had a real dedication and love for those planets, and that's what we're seeing with Pluto. This upcoming event that's going on at the observatory Uh, will celebrate some of Pluto's mystery and magic and also tie in with an important scientific event. Tell us about that. We're really excited that people are excited about Pluto and the flyby of New Horizons on July 14th. So we want to provide activities for the public to come up and really learn and have fun with Pluto all week long. A lot of those events will take place on July 14th, on the day of the flyby. How do we celebrate a place that we know so little about? (laughs) That's that's the fun part. So we will be receiving photos from Pluto. These photos will take a long time to get to us, so we won't receive those on the 14th, but they'll be slowly trickling in. Um, But NASA will be sending out a ping that will let us know that New Horizons has made it to Pluto. So that'll happen at 6 o'clock Arizona time. So we'll be celebrating that. We'll have people at the NASA site in Baltimore where all of the New Horizons scientists are. So we'll have someone on site telling us about what's going on there. Um, Lowell Observatory, because of its connection with Pluto, it's just a great place to be present at on this historic day. 
We have more information about Pluto Palooza's invasion of the Lowell Observatory on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Pilots and their crews are constantly training at Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. Part of that training includes a program called SEER, or Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. Those at high risk for isolation or capture must maintain their SEER certification. It's intended to help them return home with honor and in good health. Here is Mitchell Riley with the story. Afghanistan. A pilot has been shot down behind enemy lines. With Air Force A-10 support, an Army helicopter brings a combat search and rescue team to the injured pilot. That is the scene playing out in the air and on the ground near Ruby, Arizona, 75 miles south of Tucson. In the homeland, survival training for these wartime missions is ongoing. It prepares pilots and crew for worst-case scenarios. If you want to talk real world, I mean, the more than likely, if it was a terrorist group looking for them or enemy troops even looking for them, they'd want to capture them rather than kill them because they can use that against us. With survival medicine, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you bail out, you eject out, you ditch your aircraft. Um, there's a good possibility. Tech Sergeant Tony Fancher is a survival training specialist. He teaches airmen how to survive alone under adverse conditions. The program is known as SEER, or Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. Every three years, those who are at high risk for isolation must recertify in this program. Well, this week, I mean, it's been full bird kernels to, you know, all the way down to A1Cs. Um, it, and it's usually that way each month. You know, it, it'll be a big array of you know, different ranks, um, whether it's enlisted or officer. Mainly the reason why we have this is uh, more of an insurance policy, so they have a means to be able to you know, get back home uh, with honor and in good health. Get ready to drag, and I'll be over there in a second. One of the airmen recertifying is Staff Sergeant Whitney Levering. She is a cryptologic airborne linguist. Her language specialty is Persian Farsi, primarily spoken in Iran and Afghanistan. Her work happens in the air on the EC-130 Compass Call. It's a jamming platform. We deny and degrade and disrupt a lot of the enemy communications. And that communications part is where the linguist falls into place. But it's not just about us. We also work with a mission crew supervisor who works closely with the electronic warfare officers. All together, we work as this one unit. Don't forget to feed apart. Today, Levering's plane has been hit by enemy fire. She's parachuted from her plane and landed in an unknown body of water. With any stressful situation, your mind gives you a block, and it really impacts how you're physically reacting to something. And so by doing this water survival training, it allows us to take a step back and to actually see how much stress is putting on you and the ways that you can manage that and then react accordingly. Sergeant Fancher sees this training as a kind of practice run, a way to prepare airmen in harm's way how best to react, respond, and return home. You hear people like during active shooter situations, you know, where you hear about people freezing, you know, and that's where they go over that stress curve and they're like, you know, I don't know what to do, so I'm just like frozen, you know, and frozen with fear. 
uh, incorporating that stress inoculation with these guys that actually helps them to overcome that fear. SEER training includes classroom work, where pilots and crew are briefed on previous missions and what did and didn't work. There are lighthearted moments that break the mood, but they all know this is serious business and people's lives are at stake. From the classroom, they move into simulated parachute jumps. Most aircrew have never jumped out of an airplane before, uh, let alone did it from an in-flight emergency or their plane being shot down. Uh, in this case, the C-130 guys you know, would be bailing out, and they need to know what their actions are under canopy. The training continues on a rainy day in the desert. It's probably getting down below 50 degrees. They're going to be wet. They're going to be really wet out there. November, Papa, how copy? The scenario that I set up for them was, you know, they were shot down in enemy territory. Now they were evading. First thing they want to do is make sure they, you know, everyone's okay. Some of those pilots would be by themselves and then gather any equipment that they want to take with them and then they get out of Dodge. They want to break contact with that spot as well as the enemy, putting time and distance between them. At that point, they want to just try to find some concealment so they can calm down and assess their situation, maybe drink a little bit of water, and then start performing the actions they need to do to get, to get home. If you're just running through the woods willy-nilly and not really paying attention, you're gonna run into another enemy patrol and get captured. And sometimes they fail, putting a finer point on what could happen if they are captured. Americans! Sergeant Fancher is the enemy in this scenario. I see you, come out. Is there more than you? Excuse me. Fancher breaks down the flaws in the airman's attempt to remain concealed. Yeah, you were out in the open. I mean, it's pretty open right here. Uh, maybe using some of those low-lying spots right there. Some of those, you got some trees back there. Ten-year veteran Sergeant Tony Fancher has deployed as a SEER specialist on numerous missions, training U.S. servicemen in conflict zones on contested ground. I hope they take away that, you know, this could happen to them and that they're not invincible. There's a few pilots out there that I know, you know, they think this will never happen to them. Um, but that history has shown, you know, that you know, we go to war with someone, more than likely this will happen. The history of war does bear that out. Fancher wears a permanent reminder on his skin. Uh, this is a tattoo that represents POWMIA. There's a guy in a box here, you know, you can see his head and a blindfold right there. I actually got this picture off of a book called Survivors. Uh, it's about uh, several POWs in Vietnam. It reminds me of why I do this job. The air crew, people who are at high risk, you know, they get captured, they could become POWs. All right, so we got warmth right here, right? I've thought about it, and it's definitely a scary thought, but going through this survival training, uh, it gives me a little more of a comfort and confidence, I guess you can say, in at least I have a direction of what I should do. Sergeant Levering's last deployment was to Bagram, Afghanistan where her unit provided communication support to special forces on the ground. She joined the Air Force primarily to gain experience and fund her education. Whitney Levering got much more than she expected. You're really, you're really close. I mean, we go through this survival training together. We go through a lot of training together. There's only so many crew members on the plane. And so you get to know each other very, very well and it's like a little family while you're flying and you know everybody's quirks and their flaws and their strengths and it gives you a sense of belonging 
And I think any person in a career or in their life wants to feel part of something that's bigger than themselves. And the Air Force has really given me that. That was a radio adaptation of a television story Mitchell Riley produced for Arizona Illustrated. You can see the story online at azpm.org. While many people like to get away from the hot and humid part of the summer in southern Arizona, this is a special time of the year for a variety of animals that call the Sonoran Desert their home. As Tony Paniagua reports, these conditions are essential for the survival of some of the desert's most iconic species. Summer in southern Arizona often feels like a gigantic outdoor steam room. You're usually enveloped by tropical temperatures and high humidity, so getting relief in cooler climates or air-conditioned comfort becomes pivotal. For many native species, however, the monsoon is a time to come out, explore their surroundings, and find a mate with whom to procreate. That's the sound of a spadefoot toad in the desert whose livelihood depends on the monsoon. Sandy Wright is an environmental educator with Pima County. When the monsoon arrives, toads that have spent most of their life underground emerge to the surface and they all gather at temporary pools that form during summer rains. This is their one chance in the year to uh, mate, reproduce, and also feed. They uh, feed on insects when they're active during the monsoon. So this is their one chance so many of them gather together and so they can make a loud ruckus when they're all calling. Spadefoot toads and their cousins get so noisy, in fact, that they occasionally frighten humans in the area. People in nearby neighborhoods have sometimes called 911 because they think there's some medical emergency when they hear those eerie toad calls. Tarantulas are much quieter by comparison, but they also depend on the monsoon for their reproduction. We have a few different species of tarantulas here in the southwest, and uh, the females in particular spend most of their life underground in a burrow where it's going to be cooler and also more moist. During the monsoon, the male tarantulas are out looking for females, and if they should find a female, then they will attempt to mate with her. They will use a pair of hooks on their first pair of legs to hold the female and then proceed to mate with her. The female will then lay eggs and can lay numerous clutches of eggs from that uh, one individual mating. And there may be, depending on the species of tarantula, there may be hundreds of eggs that that female lays. But a relatively small number of babies will survive, which is usually the case among many animals, including the desert tortoise. The summer seasonal rains are also beneficial for these slow-moving vegetarian reptiles. Renee Lazad is a keeper at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum's herpetology department. She says tortoises are more active during the hotter months and will often breed. So the males often approach the females and they initiate contact by bobbing their heads and touching noses. And uh, that's usually a, a tortoise hello, as it were. After the hello, the relationship intensifies if the female is receptive to the male's maneuvers and allows him to mate. She'll lay her eggs within a few weeks of mating, and usually by the end of June they're laying their eggs, 
and then the baby tortoises will emerge at the end of the monsoon season. So right around the end of August, early September is when we're going to start seeing those baby tortoises come up. The monsoon has also been good for the growth of plants and trees, so the babies should have plenty of food and cover. Still, the little shelled land dwellers are on the menu for many other animals. Baby tortoises are predated upon by a lot of different things, whether uh, small mammals will sometimes go after them, um, some of the larger birds like ravens or even thrashers might go after the baby tortoises. So it's a tough life. you got to really blend in and stay out of trouble. That goes for humans, too. Pima County Sandy Wright says the wet summer is a terrific time to explore your surroundings, but do take precautions. The monsoon is a great time of year to get out there and do some wildlife watching because many of these species, that's the only time we may see them active, is during the monsoon. However, be careful when you're out there, especially near thunderstorms, and uh, not go outdoors during those times, but otherwise get out there and enjoy our Arizona wildlife. And remember, you can look, but please don't touch. These Sonoran Desert species are trying to produce a new generation. They prefer their space and privacy. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. Books can inspire, entertain, educate, comfort, and thrill readers of all ages. They often serve as the starting point for truly great accomplishments. In a book I love, people from every walk of life, united only by a love of reading, take the time to remind us of the difference a good book can make. The Tucson Festival of Books makes a great place to ask people for reading suggestions. And next you'll hear attendees at the 2015 festival discuss their favorite reads. My name is Jamie Alkenbrack and I am a fourth generation Arizonan born and raised in Phoenix. A book I love was the Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Um, it's just one of those books that's a sweeping fantasy novel that is just really beautiful and it's so character driven. I fell in love with the characters and couldn't stop reading it. It was just one of my favorite books that I'll reread over and over again. I think it's so different because it, it's not necessarily the fantasy world that drives the plot, it's really the characters and their interactions and the situations that they get put into and their decisions that are made based on that. And it's just such a deep, rich character that makes you fall in love with them over and over again and hate them and then fall in love with them again. I'm David Levine. I'm an attorney from Oakland, California, uh, raised in Phoenix. So I, I'm a returning Arizonan. Two retired members of Congress, Tom Davis and Martin Frost. Davis, a Republican from, I think, Virginia. Frost, a Democrat from Texas have written a book. They've done a, a very nice job of examining the roots and causes of the partisanship in Congress. And uh, they have some thoughts about how to address it, not dramatic solutions, but nibbling away at it, maybe to undermine it. If you're not angry about the way the political environment has been corrupted by tsunamis of dark money, if you're not angered by uh, politicians who, certainly entitled to their own opinions, have now come up with their own facts, um, then you're not paying attention. And uh, this is a book that should get your attention called The Partisan Divide. Hi, I'm Taryn Burleson and um, I'm here at the Festival of Books. I um, love the book The Disreputable History of Frankie Landau Banks by E. Lockhart. 
was drawn to the title because the title is um, a mouthful to say the least um, but it has a very strong female character who is trying to break into a boys club a very um, entrenched boys club at her school and she not only infiltrates but she turns it upside down and uh, pretty much destroys it. It was a National Book Award finalist as well as a um, Prinz Award winner, so it's definitely for young adults. And I'm a young adult uh, librarian at a junior high, Flowing Wells Junior High School. We've got these kids here from Flowing Wells Junior High School, so we love books. My name's Ian, and I'm 13 years old, and I go to Flowing Wells Junior High. I love the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy trilogy. Well, I like it because it's, it's just really random, and it's one of those books that can make you laugh wherever you are and whatever mood you're in. The meaning of life is 42. I'm Anna Marie Shecker and I've lived in Tucson for 15 years and I love it here. I guess Middlesex is one that really stays with me for, by Jeffrey Eugenides. And it was just a, just a miracle of storytelling. I just really was swept away by the story and um, just really marveled at the author's craft. It's a story about a hermaphrodite, and it's the story of his and her family um, of coming to America and just their whole life and, uh, in the 20th century. And um, yeah, just fascinating. Really great writing. My name's Alex. I like to play the ukulele a lot, as you can probably tell. I've lived here in Tucson my whole life, went to the U of A, just enjoying the book fair today. It's very nice. Enjoying the shade. read uh, something by Patrick Rothfuss, The Kingkiller Chronicle. It's a really good fantasy book. It's about a guy who plays a lute, which kind of appeals to me. But uh, he gets into all kind of trouble, ends up becoming a wizard and all that. You know, it's a fantasy story, so got to have some magic. Really good characters, though. My name is Anthony, I'm 10 years old, and I go to Robin's K-8. Um, my favorite book would be the Diary of the Wimpy Kid series. Actually, part of it is because his bigger, older brother is such a jerk to him, he teaches me what not to do with my, to, to my little sister. There's like other books that try to be as funny as Diary of the Wimpy Kid, but it's never as funny, I don't think. My name is Sarah. My favorite book is Harry Potter and the Sorceress of Stone. Me and my teacher read it together in the class, too. It has lots of characters, and it just like makes you feel like you're inside the book. Is there anything else you want to say about it? Mm, read it. <laughs> Perfect. Very well said. Thank you, Sarah. You did a great job. Thank you for listening to the 501st edition of Arizona Spotlight. You can now find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.